You know, I've never had an introduction uh, where the introducer said, hey, if you want to leave in the middle, just right back there. And it's an excused absence. What more could you want? More, what more could you want? As Chase said, my name is Jordan Strebeck. I'm one of the uh, non-staff elders here at Redeemer, and, and part of that gig is that uh, we pinch hit sometimes for Jason in the, uh, in the pulpit. So uh, excited to be doing that with you guys this morning and also getting to kick off our summer series, uh, which we're marketing geniuses, so we're calling it Christianity 101, snappy, you know, to the point. You kind of get what's going on. It's the basics that every Christian needs to know. So right there, you got it. We're going to do, do it, be, be doing Christianity 101 uh, this summer. And Jason asked me to introduce that. Ben's getting an early start. He's like, all right, I'm out of here. I got 101. I did that. I did that. I'm out of here. I'm going to the next steps class. This is the, this is the rookie deal. Um, so a couple reasons we want to do this. First of all, we, we, we just want to make sure that we never gloss over the basics, the, the core foundations of our faith. Uh, we, we want to make sure that we emphasize those things so often that they become kind of ingrained in our DNA. I remember listening to an interview one time, a guy, a basketball coach, was talking about he, he worked as a volunteer uh, coach a Kobe Bryant basketball camp back when, back when Kobe was the uh, undisputed best player in the world. So I'm not going to get into like, you know, who's the GOAT and all that, and it's MJ, but whatever. Um, it, but, but, but Kobe Bryant had this basketball camp, and the guy said, I finally got up the courage to ask Kobe. I said, hey, would you mind this week if I came and watched you work out? And Kobe told the guy, he said, sure, uh, I'm working out in the back gym at 4 o'clock. At tomorrow. And the guy was like, I'm looking at my schedule and I'm pretty sure the camp starts at 3.30. This is going to be pretty weird. And then he asked the Kobe's assistant, he's like, no, it's 4 a.m. He's like, okay, all right. This is going to be, he's like, but hey, I'm going to go. You get the opportunity, you got to go. So he goes, he shows up at the gym early. Kobe's already there at 3.30. He's already worked up a sweat. He's getting up shots. The workout starts at 4. And the guy said, I, I, I was shocked at how much time Kobe Bryant spent doing basic dribbling, footwork, and shooting drills that I would do with junior high kids. And I mean, he spent, he spent a ton of time on this. He said, I was so surprised. I don't know what I expected, but I was so surprised. And, and here's the best basketball player in the world, and this is what he's doing. And he said, later that afternoon, he, he, he had the opportunity to kind of, he, he cornered him, and he said, he asked him some questions about his workout, and he said, man, I'm, I am just kind of surprised by how much time you spent doing what I would call kind of like rudimentary basic drills. I mean, you're the best player in the world. I don't, why, do you, why do you do that? And he said, Kobe Bryant looked at him and he said, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Um, and, and I love that because we, we can take something from that, that. Just because something is basic doesn't mean it's not important. In fact, it's right there in the word. It's a base. It's a foundation upon which something is built. And just because something is foundational doesn't mean that it's easy. A lot of these things that we're going to cover, they might seem simple, but they're definitely not easy uh, in terms of applying them in our lives. So I would encourage you uh, not to just gloss over this and be like, oh, okay, I'm going to kind of check out and put it on cruise control because I got it because you probably don't got it. Um, so don't, don't check out. That's one. 
We want to make sure we don't neglect the basics, the fundamentals of our faith. Two, we never want to assume that everyone here knows all this stuff. I think sometimes in the church, we make the, the mistake of assuming that everybody's, you know, spent a thousand Sundays in Sunday school and everything else. And the truth of the matter is we all come into this room from different walks of life. Uh, you may, this may be your first time in church. This may be your hundredth time in church. Maybe, who knows, maybe you've been here every day. The doors have been open since the day you were born. Good for you. But we never want to assume that we're on the same page about the basics of our faith. There are some things that it is okay to assume. You can assume death, taxes, that if you're a Cowboys fan, you're going to be disappointed at the end of the year, that if there's road construction in Midland, it's going to take longer than they say it's going to take, that if you live somewhere, you're probably going to complain about the road construction there as though road construction doesn't happen anywhere else and take twice as long as they say it's going to take. All these things are safe to assume. There are some things you don't want to assume. I'm not going to go into what those are uh, in this sermon. Brian Regan has some really great stand-up about what is not safe to assume. But we never want to assume that everyone's on the same page. And then lastly, we just want this to be a series where you can feel comfortable inviting people in with a very low barrier to entry. We're not going to be covering, uh, you know, some really arcane, like diving deep, deep, deep into some you know, eschatology or Christology or the theology or a bunch of words that end in ology. Like this is going to be something that is approachable for folks who maybe aren't comfortable in a church setting or haven't been around church much at all. Uh, so we're, we're going to kick off this series with the concept. Jason asked me to cover the, the concept of the doctrine of Imago Dei. All right. Imago Dei. Now, this is a phrase that some of you may have heard before, some of you may have never heard it in your life, or some of you may have heard it and been like, I have no idea what that means. I'm about like Ron Burgundy in Anchorman when it comes to interpreting foreign languages. Well, it's simply Latin for the image of God. And this is a term that's frequently used as shorthand in our faith to talk about mankind, you and I, being made in the image of God. So where does this idea come from, this concept of Imago Dei? Well, we first see it in, in Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. And in verse 27, in 127, we get this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then we see it again in Genesis 5, and, and we see it again in, in Genesis 9. It, it pops up a couple other times, and, and then we see it couple times in the New Testament as well, but that's really the basics uh, or the basis of where, of where it comes from. And this is, this, is, this is awesome, amazing, great news that you may have never really taken the time in your cruising through the Bible to stop and just be grateful for. But what that, with that one sentence right there, what we're told is that we are created in the image of the creator of the universe. And that, y'all, is amazing. That is awesome. It's a special, special thing. There's, there is something very special and unique about having an image imprinted upon you, especially in this sense. Um, those of you who have kids can probably relate to this. It's, 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 it's awesome to see, you know, these, these traits and characteristics that, that are passed down in our bloodlines. If you've ever met 
Jason Hatch, our senior pastor, and then met his kids and seen pictures of Jason as a boy and like Judah and Hudson as boys, you're like, man, there is no denying. There's no paternity test required. That's Jason's kid. Like this is very, very cut and dried. If you've seen the Goachers walking around with all their curly hair, you're like, yep, I get it. That's, that's awesome. There's something special about this, um, even in our DNA. My dad, who, and I promise I tell this story, my dad's awesome and I love him and he's awesome, but this is a great story. He, uh, my dad grew up raising cattle and I actually found out, he's, he's always been fascinated with bloodlines, with, with DNA, with genes and how you can crossbreed different, different lines of cattle uh, to, to have better outcomes with your, uh, you know, with, with, with what you wind up with in your herd. And I actually found out recently that he was on a national championship livestock judging team in New Mexico State in the 70s. Uh, my mom like found a clipped out like newspaper picture. My dad had hair um, and they were all holding these plaques. And I'm like, man, you talk about like West Texas or Eastern New Mexico rural nerd Olympics, like that is it. And he did it, good job, dad. But he's always been fascinated by this. And uh, when I was in college, some of y'all know the story of how I met my wife, but I met her at a prayer meeting at, at uh, Southcrest University Ministry, which eventually wound up becoming Redeemer uh, Lubbock. The day before classes started, I met her, and some of my friends introduced me to her, and I was immediately smitten. And the more that I got to know her, unfortunately, the more and more smitten I became. And she was in that same process, the more and more into the friend circle, uh, the friend zone, like I just really, really buried myself uh, in there. And it took me about 18 months to get her to go on a date with me. But I, I, I told my, my, my mom and dad would ask all the time, you know, how, how's it going? And, and I told them very early on, I met this girl, Brittany, and she's amazing and she can, she can sing. She's got the voice of an angel. Like she loves Jesus. Like she's reading like some super awesome, like deep theology books. She's unlike any other woman I've ever met. She's, she's so kind and loving and she's beautiful and she's six feet tall. Like this is, this is, this is awesome. And, and she doesn't like me back. Um, and so my, my dad, from time to time, he'd be like, how's, how's Brittany doing? I'm like, good. She's still saying she just likes me as a friend. And he's like, she still sings? I say, yeah, she's still tall. He's like, yeah, okay, all right, you know. And, um, but I came up with this genius scheme. I was like, our band, uh, when we would play, I would find excuses to ask Brittany to sing with us. I'd be like, oh, we really need a female vocalist because we're going to do a duet. I don't know what duet yet, but we're going to do some duets. We need you. Would you come sing with us? And uh, one time my parents were in town when we were playing a show in Lubbock and my parents came to the show and, uh, and after the show, a bunch of us were standing around talking and, uh, and Brittany came up to say bye or something. And I was like, oh, mom, dad, this is Brittany. And my dad goes, the Brittany? And I was like, <clears throat> yes, dad. I don't know what you're talking about. And, uh, but Brittany, you know, she, she knew, she kind of turned a little red and, and he goes, boy, right in front of her, he goes, boy, you weren't, you weren't wrong. Uh, I mean, she's, you know, she does sing like an angel. She's beautiful. And she is, she's six feet tall. He, and, he, and he smacked me and he goes, I mean, hybrid vigor. I mean, you guys would have tall kids. And I'm like, dad, uh, dad. Uh, uh, I had a little more hair back then. 
And, uh, and Brittany goes, well, what's, what's hybrid vigor? And he goes, well, you know, if you got one line of cattle over here and they've got these great characteristics and you take this line of cattle over here and you cross their, their, uh, their gene pools, you get a better, the next generation's better. It's called hybrid vigor. And Brittany was like, did your dad just compare me to a cow? Is that what, is that what just happened? He's like, oh, oh, ah, oh. But Sid was smart. My dad was smart, and we did. Our kids are super tall. They are, they are all super, super tall. Um, but there's something special about, about DNA and about the things that, that we pass on, and there's something special about this idea of us being made, created in the image of God. It's special. Now, why is it, why is it important? This is a foundational important thing that should impact every area of our life, but we're gonna break it down into three things. The first is it has to inform and impact how we view God. Um, The second is it has to inform and impact how we view others. And then the last is it has to inform and impact how we view and think about ourselves. So we're gonna walk through that. We'll start with the first one. What does... Imago Dei, tell us about God. Well, first of all, it tells us that he created us, okay? He's the creator, we're the creation, all right? And I think sometimes we get that maybe, a little, we, water, we muddy that water a little bit, we kind of make it more of a co-founder situation. It's not, it's not. He made us, we're his creation. And he has rights, he has rights over us. Okay, so for starters, it establishes this dominion that he made us in his image, but he made us. In Romans 9, uh, verse 20, Paul kind of gets after the church in Rome a little bit and says, he says, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Does the potter not have the right to make what he will out of the clay. And he's making a great point. I think a lot of times we're going, I kind of like to be maybe a little better bowl. Like right now, I feel like I'm kind of a small bowl that's being used for this. I kind of like to be more like a, a big bowl or maybe a plate or maybe a, like a roof shingle or I'd like to be, you know, and it's like, hey, the potter has rights over the clay and God as our creator has rights over us. And that might seem like a simple thing, but if you think about all the areas in our life where we kind of try to talk ourselves out of that, I think it's pretty important. Along with that, we fit into his design, not the other way around. Okay, we have to remember this on a daily basis. The world does not revolve around you and I. This isn't the Truman Show. Doesn't revolve around what we think or what we want or our opinions or how we would like things. We're created beings living in a world that God made, and we should always be asking ourselves how God designed things and what He has to say about it because He has rights over us. This is especially important in today's world because you don't need me to tell you that our world does not recognize this authority over us. You're not going to find a lot of Disney movies that really drive this point home. If you go throw it on whatever radio station you listen to, unless it's Caleb and maybe not even then, you're not going to find this point being driven home. The world media, 
Hollywood, entertainment, colleges, whatever, even in Midland, the world does not always recognize God as creator and his design as good and perfect and authoritative. And you can see the consequences. I mean, this impacts how we view everything. And so the reason I emphasize that is, is we have to make sure that as believers that we don't let what the world might say about God's design leak into our worldview and how we think about design. This scripture has to inform that, not what the world has to say. It's evident even in that first verse, Genesis 127, that has pretty big implications for how we view the family, for how we view marriage, for how we view, uh, how we view the concept of gender, all those things. And his design is authoritative. His design is what matters, not what we think it ought to be. Now, his design is perfect, but we do have to recognize the impact of sin on his design. Because though you and I are created in the image of God, we are not the perfect fulfillment or embodiment of that image. Does that make sense? And you and I have both been hurt and harmed at different times by other image bearers of God. And so I think we do have to recognize that. Um, we do know though from scripture that, that, that the fall, that the introduction of sin did not, um, did not do away with this concept of Imago Dei because we see it in Genesis 9, uh, him talking, uh, God talks about uh, what happens if, you, if an image bearer kills another image bearer because they are image bearers and that's post fall. John Piper, I think, would say it. I'm going to summarize this, um, but John Piper, I think, would, would say it in a manner something like this. And John Piper is, is, a, is a pastor and theologian um, that, that, that uh, has been impactful on many of us. Um, but he would say something like this, that sin and the introduction of sin have defaced God's perfect design. They've corrupted it, but it is only defaced, and it's not destroyed. And the good news about something being defaced, you think about graffiti or you, or you think about uh, somebody, uh, you know, egging a house or, or doing something to, to deface something. The good news is that it can be repaired. It can be redeemed. And so it is with God and his perfect design. But we do have to be cognizant of the fact that sin... Um, has snuck in and defaced and corrupted that perfect design. What else does Imago Dei tell us about God? It also tells us about the goodness of God. I love that uh, Jonathan and Melody sang that song immediately before this because it does tell us something about the goodness of God. He made us lovingly in his image as a good and loving father. I love that. This isn't some dispassionate, far-off creator that's doing like a science experiment down here, he imprinted his image upon us. And I think that tells us something about the goodness of God. And then lastly, I think it tells us he wants his name, he wants his glory known throughout the earth. You don't make, if you think about an image being imprinted onto something, if you think about a sculpture of something, an artist doesn't 
painstakingly craft a sculpture of something ugly or something that's not worthy of being known or being admired. And so it is with God and his image that tells us that, that he wants his name, his glory, his image to be known throughout the earth. What does Imago Day tell us about how we should view others? Well, first of all, we have to keep in mind that every person that we deal with on a daily basis is an image bearer of God. And that because of that, every person has intrinsic value and worth. We have to remember that. I think this helps us make sense of why Jesus would tell us in scripture when asked what's the most important commandment, he says basically uh, love God and then love your neighbor as yourself and puts those as one flowing out of the other. I think God the Father wants us as fellow image bearers of his to love one another. Those of you who have multiple kids know that it's one thing if, if your son or daughter has a friend over and they get into a little bit of a scrum, usually where I find myself in that scenario is disciplining my kid and going, hey, listen, like, you know, this is a guest in our house. Like, you need to think about how you deal with your friend. But boy, I tell you what, you want to really see my blood pressure, like, go through the roof? Let my kids fight with each other. When my kids fight with each other, I'm like, do you not, do you not get this? That is your sister. That is your sister. Like, do you not understand? That's your brother. How do you not get this? We just drove to Florida last week in a nice 16-hour car ride in the car together. The number of times where I almost went rage monster from Dude Perfect on my kids and disqualified myself from eldership was like, it was a, it was a, it was a decently long list. Uh, but there's something uniquely offensive about my kids treating each other poorly. I'm like, y'all are both my sons. Stop treating each other like that. You're brothers. I think so it is with God and his creation. We are all image bearers, and it's important to him that we love one another. I think we have to always keep in mind that every single person on this planet is an image bearer of God and has worth. I love... Um, I heard Tim Tebow tell a story one time. Uh, someone asked him, they said, how did you get into kind of all the things that your foundation works on? Like, how, how, did that, how, did you, like, how did this start? And for those of you who might not be familiar with who Tim Tebow is, he was a, uh, a very successful uh, quarterback. And he, in high school, he was this, you know, five-star, everybody wanted him quarterback. But his parents were, had been missionaries in the Philippines. And they would regularly go back to the Philippines and, and do mission work there. And Tim tells the story of, they were in this village and some kids brought their friend up to meet him. And the kid had been born with his feet on backwards. And because of that, his village had declared that he was useless, he had no, no value and he was cast out of the village. And so he literally lived like a beggar on the edge of the village. He wasn't allowed in there society. And he talks about meeting this kid and the kid's friends were telling him like, well, he's an outcast and here's why. And, and all, and they were just saying it so matter of factly, they weren't saying, isn't this wrong? Can you help him? And Tim talks, he, he says, 
that he felt the strongest conviction he's ever felt in his life in that moment, looking at that kid. He said he felt like God was telling him he might not matter to them and he might not matter to anybody else, but he matters to me and he better matter to you. And I love, I love, love, love that story. And because of that conviction that, that this, this child mattered to God and he better matter to him, now I, I don't even know how many clinics they've set up uh, throughout the Philippines and Africa where they do basic surgeries for kids with things that are very correctable, like their feet being born, on back, uh, being born with their feet on backwards and things like that. But that, that all stemmed from him having this realization. This kid couldn't do anything to help him. There was no value that he had to him in the world's terms, but he, in that moment, he finally understood what it meant for somebody to be an image bearer of God and have intrinsic value because of that one thing. And I think if we believe that, I think if we understand that, it changes how we interact with everything in our world. And I started going down the list and I really don't think there's anything in our lives that would be untouched by this truth. I think for starters, we might be a little more patient and kind and gracious on a daily basis. We might be just a little less likely to like go off the handle on somebody that isn't driving the speed limit on the loop or, uh, or be a little less judgmental when we go to Walmart and feel like we see people making bad lifestyle choices or, or demonizing people that disagree with us or have the wrong opinions. I think it might make us a little bit more, uh, a little bit more aggressive about how we view missions, about how we view sharing the gospel because if every human has worth and every human matters, why wouldn't we wanna share the gospel with them? I think about the biggest issue facing men in our world today, and this isn't just me saying it, this is uh, academic studies echoing this as well, is, uh, is pornography and all the issues that stem from that and lust and all those things. How would, and I, I realize that's not just men, but how differently would we approach that if we viewed the people on the other side of that deal as image bearers? of God and not something to be objectified. How would it change the way we approach business? Like Christians ought to be like the most ethical, honest, upstanding people in the entire business community. Whether you're mowing a lawn, whether you're uh, cooking a burger, whether you're, uh, whether you're teaching science, whether you're whatever it is that you're doing, whether you're an accountant or whether you're working on a $5 billion transaction next week. Irrespective of what it is that we do, what would it change if we looked at everybody in a 360 degree angle of what our work touches as an image bearer of God? Would it change maybe how we look at social media? Y'all have any friends that are really awesome and really nice and you're like, man, that, that guy is just super nice. And then he gets on Twitter or Facebook and you're like, holy smokes, this guy turned into the alley scene from Anchorman and he's brick and he just stabbed a guy with a trident. Like, why are you so mad all of a sudden? That is just me. I'm the only person who knows people like that. It's good. It's good to know. Uh, 
Would it change maybe how we think about gossip? I mean, in James, we actually see this exact concept reference. James says, talks about taming the tongue, and he says that with this same tongue, we bless God, and then we turn around with the tongue that God gave us, and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. How would it change the way we view poverty and injustice? How would it change the way that we view racism? How would it change the way that we view things like abortion? If we really believe that every person is made in the image of God, how would it change all those things? I think it'd be pretty big. And then lastly, and this one might not seem intuitive or, or, or obvious, but I think Imago Day has to change how we view ourselves. I think we need to be mindful of the worth that we have in God's eyes. We bear his image. This isn't, I'm not talking like Stuart Smalley's self-esteem and doggone it, people like you. Uh, like I'm not, I'm not talking about that. And as a matter of fact, some of you guys, maybe you don't need to hear this. Some of y'all, maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're a little too, too high on your horse and this isn't for you. Um, when I was in elementary school, my brother Brent and I were uh, somehow wound up in the high school production of Cheaper by the Dozen. Um, we were the kids. And, um, and I remember the lead in the play the, the guy's name was Brent Ockett, and if any of you know Brent Ockett, um, you know, you can tell him that uh, you heard this story. But we thought he was so cool. He was this, like, big, studly guy, and he would, before every performance, every, every time, he would stand in front of his mirror in the dressing room, and he'd go, Brent, you good-looking sucker, don't you ever die. Don't you even catch a cold. And then he'd walk out there. And man, me and my brother thought that was the funniest thing. And uh, matter of fact, every now and then, when maybe he didn't know that I was down the hall and he was just in the bathroom by himself, I'd hear him go, Brent, you good looking sucker. Don't you ever die. Don't you even catch a cold. And some of y'all might have that same irrational level of self-confidence. And, and maybe this isn't for you, I think. But for most of us in the church, I think sometimes we emphasize maybe just a little bit too much the idea of our sin nature and, and, and really focus on the, the doctrine of, of, of total depravity or, 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 or the idea that, that sin has really corrupted all this stuff. We really focus on that, which is, which is good. That's great because that points us to the cross. That, that informs and reinforces our need for Jesus. And that's good. But we also need to remember alongside that in tandem that we are image bearers of our creator and balance that with the idea that we are loved so much that Jesus would take the wrath that we had rightfully earned and he would take it in our stead. In thinking about this and thinking about Imago Dei, don't forget, never ever forget that you, you were created in the image of God. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't an accident. You were created in the image of God. Now again, 
We don't want this to make us arrogant, okay? We're not trying to go to that side of the spectrum as though this was something that we had done to deserve. In fact, this should breed just the opposite. This should give us a humble confidence, the humble, joyous confidence that comes with being chosen and belonging despite having done nothing to deserve it. Not because of anything good we have done, but because of the good that he has done. What would change in our lives if we really believed that? If we really believed that we had worth as image bearers created in his image? What would that change about the way that we pursue wealth or about the way that we pursue love or acceptance or belonging? If we really had that humble confidence in where our worth and our value and our identity truly originated. Because let me just tell you, Redeemer, you could spend every minute from now until the day that Jesus comes back trying to understand and plumb the depths of God's love for you, and I can tell you, you'd never even get close to the bottom. You'd never even get close. And even if you feel like you've blown it, or even if you feel like you don't deserve it, guess what? I'm right there with you. And guess what? We're not wrong. We have blown it. We don't deserve it. But that makes it all the more special and all the more beautiful, all the more wild. Towards the end of his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul in chapter three, he says that he, he goes before the father to ask. He bows before the father and asks that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength the strength to do what? The strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You catch that? He wants you to be strengthened with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, so that you, so that you could have the strength to comprehend the depth, the breadth, the, the width, the height, and the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of, of God. This, this, is not some, this is not some minor task to understand the love of God. But I love that us being image bearers of his helps give us an idea of what that might be. So as we close today and as the band comes up, I want us to dwell on a couple of things. If we believe this, if we really believe this, Redeemer, and we really understood this truth, that we serve a good and, and mighty creator who imprints his image Onto every man, woman, and child, what will change in our lives? What will change in your life?
And lastly, how amazing is it that we serve and worship a God who is gracious enough to form us in his image? And to serve a God who, despite us defacing his creation with our rebellion, he willingly came, he lived the perfect life, he bore the shame and the suffering that you and I rightfully earned and deserved, and he conquered sin and death, offering you and offering me a seat at the family table as adopted sons and daughters of God. How amazing is that? How awesome, how... How life-changing is that truth? I think that's great that that's why we started off this, this foundational series with that because that forms the bedrock on which we can understand all the rest of this. That's the God that we serve. That's the God.